0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill Briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, Today's event is on climate change, Copenhagen, and and Congress. Pat Michaels, uh, who is our uh, Senior Fellow in Environmental Studies, is going to be talking about the science. But briefly, before we get into that, I uh, wanted to bring your attention to a paper that Cato published last year, February of last year, what to do about climate change. It was one of the papers out on the registration table. And it's a really interesting paper. It starts by premising, uh, it starts by assuming that um, the economic and scientific foundations of the Stern Report are accurate, and then proceeds to do a cost-benefit analysis um, on several different uh, ways of dealing with climate change. Now, those of you who are familiar with the literature and with the Stern report uh, know that the scientific and economic foundations of that report um, are pretty controversial, and I'm sure that Pat could probably spend a a decent amount of time picking apart the scientific uh, measures that they use in that, and uh, our economists uh, could certainly do the same with respect to a number of the assumptions there. But taking that as given, the uh, policy analysis looks at what's the best thing to do? Should we reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Or should we do some sort of focused adaptation and um, a sustainable development sort of scenario? And in terms of both environmental quality and human well-being, he concludes that adaptation is the superior route. But that's not the topic of today's discussion. Uh, We have Pat to talk about science. He is a senior fellow in environmental studies at the Cato Institute and a distinguished senior fellow in the school of public policy at george mason university he is a past president of the american association of state climatologists and was program chair for the committee on applied climatology of the american meteorological society michaels was also a research professor of environmental sciences at the university of virginia for 30 years he is a contributing author and reviewer of the united nations intergovernmental panel on climate change which was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. He is the author, most recently, of Climate of Extremes, a primer on global warming science, and of three other books on climate change. His writing has been published in the major scientific journals as well as the popular press, and was an author of the Climate Paper of the Year, awarded by the Association of American Geographers in 2004. He has also appeared on most of the worldwide major media. Michaels holds degrees in biological sciences and plant ecology from the University of Chicago, and he received a Ph.D. in ecological climatology from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. After Pat's prepared remarks, we're going to move into a discussion period, and uh, I hope you'll all have good questions for him. Pat Michaels.
1: That was a compliment, folks. He actually said I had prepared remarks. I haven't prepared a remark in my life. At any rate, uh, I would like to talk to you about... um, the legislation that you all are considering and with regard to the science. And I want to say at the outset that I remain incredibly disappointed at the rhetoric of the scientific discussion on this issue where whether it's the press, whether it's the internet, whether it's you and I, I don't know. But we divide people into two camps on global warming scientifically. People who seem to think that it's the end of the world unless we do something in the next 51 days or something like that and people who say there's no such thing as global climate change. Look, everybody in the room knows the truth lies somewhere in between, and I think by dealing with the truth we can come to more rational policy than dealing with the extremes. Anyway, uh, this is the experiment that you all are undertaking or we are undertaking as a nation. This is a graph of uh, carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere in red and U.S. per capita GDP in blue. They are obviously highly related. Uh, What we are trying to do, what is going to happen ostensibly with Waxman-Markey, is that that relationship is going to be deconvolved. Deconvolved in the following sense: five percent emissions below uh, 2005 emissions in 2012, 16 percent below in 2020, 42 in 2030, and 83 in 2050. Now. Those who will maintain that doing this uh, would result in uh, a similar growth in GDP as we have are going to take apart this relationship that we will see exist not just here but around the world. Do not kid yourself. In terms of a fundamental economic relationship between energy production, consumption, and economy, you are engaging in by far the biggest social engineering experiment in the history of the world. Don't kid yourself. And this is how big it is. These are per capita emissions in the United States, data from Energy Information Administration and the U.S. Census Bureau. Uh, You can see how they begin to take off around 1840 with the Industrial Revolution, blah, blah, blah. Here they are in 2005 at about 18 metric tons uh, per person. Waxman-Markey takes it it back down to that level in 2012, uh, and then takes it all the way down here to 83% below in 2050, that gives you the per capita, per capita emissions of the average American in 1867. That's a major experiment. We will obviously meet the 2005 level by 2012, though. Senator Boxer has noted that, that emissions are down substantially already. Well, that's, that is correct. There's 2005 over here on the left... 2006, 2007, 2008 with the beginning of the great financial contraction. In 2009, they're going to be 8% below 2008 levels. So don't congratulate yourself for having met the 2012 target uh, because it's going to happen no matter what. Uh, The more serious question is what happens after 2012 and what your policy is and what you finally adopt, if anything. Uh, And I'm going to take what I think is a reasonable position on this. I'm not going to go around telling you that there's no such thing as global warming. I'm not going to tell you carbon dioxide doesn't have any effect on climate. Uh, And I'm also going to tell you that that we ought to examine what the sensitivity to climate is to carbon dioxide so we can come to some sort of rational conclusion. Uh, First of all, it's very clear late in the 20th century that there is a greenhouse signal in the temperature. Uh, However, what is very unclear is the magnitude and the sensitivity of temperature to carbon dioxide and how good our models are. For some reason, we have not been very, very candid, I think, at evaluating our models on this, and I will candidly do that later on in this talk. And at the risk of boring some of you, uh, I just want to go through some basic global warming science because I know there are a lot of new staffers here uh, and, and a lot of people that I haven't seen this is going to take me a couple boring minutes. The rest of you have a good lunch, okay? Uh, important. Number one, it's been known since the late 19th century that the response of temperature to an increment of carbon dioxide is logarithmic. That means that the first changes in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere produce the greatest warming, everything, being eas- everything else being equal. Of course, it never is. And we assume the carbon dioxide goes in the atmosphere as a low-order exponential function. Uh, and, indeed, if you take a look at the Mauna Loa curve, that's the, temp- the carbon dioxide measured in Mauna Loa beginning in, eight, in, in 1957, it is uh, a low-order exponent. Uh, unfortunately, it is less than was gen- is generally assumed by the United Nations. It's less than is generally assumed uh, by climate modelers. The increase in terms of a percent, remember, it's compound interest exponential, has been r- around 0.5% per year for the last several decades. It has not budged from that figure. Despite the major increases in China, despite the major increases in India, the amount remains, I think it was 0.49% in the last 10 years, and 039 before that, and then 048 before that, so sitting r- for three decades right around the half a percent. The United Nations tends to assume it's about 0.7%. And for intercomparison purposes, climate models assume it's 1%. It shouldn't shock you that more warming is being predicted than is being observed. So, anyway, here's a little fact that might be useful in our discussion of this. If you have a logarithmic response and an exponential increase in the forcing to that response, it's pretty easy for the two to come out to a straight line. I know this is shocking. But in fact, that's as you will see, that is the characteristic of our climate models. Every time you hear someone say, global warming is occurring at an increasing rate, first of all, that's wrong. Secondly, uh, that would mean that our climate models were wrong because global warming should occur more at a constant rate because of the the combination of the exponent and the logarithm. And that is very, very well worth noting in the temperature history, uh, which should come up right there. That's the IPCC, United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's uh, temperature record. I often like to say that I am an active member of this group, proving that all garden parties need a skunk. That line's getting a little old. Uh, Also, due to the loss of supply and demand, the skunks get to fly in front. But anyway, uh, there are two warmings in the 20th century. Uh, One that runs from about 1910 to about 1940, then it doesn't do much and then it begins to warm up again in 1975-76, something called the Great Pacific Climate Shift, uh, something that was not even recognized to have occurred until 10 years after it did, uh, and then the warming continues through the late 1990s, and then prompts the very interesting discussion. Okay. Again, here is how to get off topic very, very quickly on this uh, where you shouldn't. Uh, it is this little area right here which begins around 1996 or 1997, it's quite clear that there is uh, that the, the warming flattened out. Now, first of all, I'd like to point out to you, I, I on purpose drew a linear trend through this data. Because you can see that despite the fact that you don't have warming for the last 12 years or so, the straight line fits the data very, very well. And that, that means that probably the functional form of the computer models, meaning straight-line warming, is, is not too far off from reality. The magnitude may be off from reality, but the functional form appears to be decent. And uh, here is a close-up look at the behavior since 1990. This is January 1996 to April 2009. And there are two data sets here. The blue are the... Uh, the surface temperatures from the Hadley Center uh, at uh, at the University of East Anglia Uh, that's the one where people have been trying to find the original data and they've been disappeared Uh, that's another story unless there's more time in Q&A and then the bottom one are the satellite temperatures from the University of Alabama at Huntsville. Don't trouble yourself with the fact that one appears lower than the other. They're not they're just set off to different mean values so one one is a departure from a 30-year mean, and the satellites a departure from a different mean. That's why they appear. That's why they appear uh, different. But the, the important fact is that they just don't show any real trend for all this period. Now, we published a paper uh, a long time ago, actually not that long, but a while back, where we demonstrated that if you take the variations about this trend, okay, they are easily explained in large part by the following factors. One, ENSO. That's the El Nino Southern Oscillation. In fact, if you go back to that big peak, that was 1998, which was a massive El Nino. And uh, uh, I-, I made a bet with Hansen in 98 that we would have a net cooling after the last ten years, and I lost. It took one more year to get the cooling. And so I never... Being off by one year in ten-year forecast is a lot better than most climate models. Anyway, Oops, I'm sorry. Uh, And then the second one are volcanoes. We haven't really seen one since Pinatubo of of any import. The third one factors solar variability. That's as measured by sunspots in this particular model. And the sun is very, very cold right now and has been colder than normal for a few years. The next sunspot cycle is taking its own sweet time. In getting started in any significant fashion. There's a debate as to whether it's going to start at all. Uh, I I think I heard that debate two sunspot cycles ago, which dates me, Uh, but it does the debate happens when it's slow to fire up. And the fourth one, on the bottom here, is the one that I'd like to sort of factor in with all these. You have the warming trend through the late 1990s uh, and the media uh, or not that, I'm not, not going to blame the media. The rhetorical hypothesis is that global warming has suddenly stopped, and therefore there's no such thing as a carbon dioxide effect, which would mean that you would expect this forcing all of a sudden to have gone flat here in 1990. Or you could build a computer model where you continued the warming pressure from carbon dioxide in the model and factored in all these three factors. See which works better. So I've got two assumptions. One Global warming pressure from CO2 continued, but that it was, it was completely countered any increase in warming by the three factors above, or for some mysterious reason, global warming pressure from carbon dioxide stopped. And here's your answer. Here are two data sets. The first one is the surface temperature. The bottom one is the satellite, and if you look very closely, <coughs> the red line is... Uh, is the the assumption that global warming continues in the model, the blue line that it stopped, and again here in the satellite record, the red line that it continues, the blue line that it stopped. Do you see the difference between the two? Assuming that it continued, in fact, fits the data much better than assuming that it didn't continue. But there are implications of this now that are, are, are certainly worth considering and for some reason are not being discussed very much at all. Uh, but I will, I will get to those in a second. I just want to beat the dead horse one more time. Uh, if you're going to look for warming, if you're going to look for greenhouse warming, you're going to want to look in places that have neither water vapor nor CO2 in their atmosphere to begin with when all the CO2 started to go in. Because water vapor and carbon dioxide absorb a lot of the same wavelengths of radiation coming from the surface of the earth and so not completely but in part they 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 behave in tandem on that logarithmic function so the first increments of either water vapor or co2 into an atmosphere that has little of either will produce a large warming well find me a place where there's less water vapor in the atmosphere than somewhere else and i'll try winter we'll find a time you don't have to live in Washington, D.C. very long to appreciate that there's a lot more water vapor in the atmosphere in the summer than there is in the winter. Number two, uh, let's try the middle of land areas like Siberia or, or northwestern North America. They're very, very dry in the winter. The dew point runs around minus 40. In fact, even here it's very dry in the winter. It's unusually dry for human beings. That's why most people wind up having to use skin lotion in the winter. Uh, because there's just so little moisture in the air. Anyway, uh, this chart is from the, um, the NASA temperature record, which has its own problems. I'd be happy to talk about those. But uh, this is a cold season temperature trend since the second warming of the 20th century begins in 1977. And it's flipped six months at the equator. Uh, it used to be I showed a chart through 1995, but I wanted to show to people that, and then, then they would say, well, you stopped in 1995, you know, the warming stopped in 1995, so you're arguing, you're really, you're really cherry-picking the data. By the way, www.worldclimatereport.com, if you want my website, there's a great article, that uh, a reference to how to cherry-pick climate data, that has gotten everyone mad at me, which means it's probably very, very good. Uh, <clears throat> we, we, both, we, we showed how both, quote, sides can pick a spot and get what they want. Anyway, um, this is the cold season. Now I'm going to flip this to the warm season. The, red, the redder colors are obviously the warmer colors in terms of temperature change from the long-term mean. Uh, and it's not as striking as it was when you do it through 1995, but just take a look as I flip backwards and forwards from the cold half year to the warm half year. Look at the northern hemisphere. You can see it's less, there's less, clearly l- systematically less warming in the warm half year than there is in the cold half year. Cold, warm warm okay so fine so you have uh, a greenhouse warming are we done with that yet you know I mean it's, it's like I hate to sound like uh, it's time to move on on that one okay but the implication of the recent behavior has not really really been drawn out this here is uh, the 21 models from the IPCC's mid range emissions scenario That's the A1B scenario. Uh, We'll talk about where we actually are in a little bit uh, with regard to these scenarios. But I want you to find a 15-year period in one of these individual models where it's flat. You can't. There isn't one. There are little periods where it actually does drop because the models ostensibly have El Nino, La Nina cycles in them. But you don't see a 15-year flat period. Now, remember what this warming is predicated upon. It's predicated upon, A, increasing carbon dioxide, and then, B, warming up the surface temperature of the ocean a little bit so that the vapor pressure of water increases and more water goes in the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas, like carbon dioxide. And that's how you get the large warmings in these models. If you, if you A, don't have the oceanic feedback, and it's, it's debatable... In the literature, what, certainly what the magnitude of that is, some people even debating the sign now. If you don't have it, or if it's delayed, then you get obviously less warming. That ocean has a lot of thermal lag. You put a 15 year flat spot in the temperatures, and you're putting a much longer delay into the temperature time series. And so consequently, uh, these are with the recent 15 year period almost certainly means that the average value here, which is the dotted line, and by the way, you'll notice that dotted line is pretty straight. It's not an ever-increasing line. The dotted line is probably a little high. Uh, In fact, um, here's the interesting thing we can do. We can actually ask some questions about the dotted line and the recent behavior of temperatures versus modeled values. Here are the first 20 years. Whoops, 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 sorry about that. Here are the first 20 years uh, of the last chart just to show you that how constant in this time frame the warming is projected to be. Obviously, if you take the mean value here of the trend, uh, it is not significantly different than the mean value of the trend in the first half of the period. So these models are essentially running at constant warming, which allows you to do some very interesting things. M- namely, you can time step through them and get a very large distribution of what warming trends they would predict. You could get the 95% confidence limits from each model for each one of these lines of colored spaghetti. And then you could compare them to the observed trends uh, since this thing started here in 2000. Uh, And here's what you get. Each one of these little acronyms down here is one of those colored spaghetti lines down there. This is the average bar. That's the dotted line right there. And the blue line... Uh, which should be readable as UEA or CRU, are the University of East Anglia temperature trends observed during the period. The red line is the GIST; That's the Goddard Institute for Space Studies' NASA temperature record. One of the things you notice is that it's very clear that the blue line is falling at or below the 95% confidence limits of these models. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as scientists... <laughs> We are required, when something is below the 95% confidence level, to reject the hypothesis. In other words, to say that there is something fundamentally wrong and adjust the hypothesis. And in this case, I mean, the simplest thing to do is going to be to adjust the sensitivity of the models to carbon dioxide. And uh, my profession will be happy to do that as soon as you pass a law. Trust me. That's when it will happen. So anyway... uh, the reason the GIS model runs warmer, by the way, is because what what has been done is the temperatures in the high Arctic, which are on land stations, have had their range extended. I think it's 1,200 kilometers, which brings them way out into the Arctic Ocean. And because there's a, there's a decent warming in those northerly stations, then you're putting more warming in the record. If you put the same range of the temperatures in the gists uh, that are in the U- East Anglia temperature curve, it comes much closer to it. And, and you know, you, you must know that extending the land temperatures from, say, Resolute or Clyde or some of those places way up there, hundreds of miles out in the Arctic Ocean is very, very dangerous because the Arctic Ocean, at best, in late summer, is a sea of mush. Uh, and laws of physics say that you're not going to get above freezing until the mush turns all to water freezing being about 28 or 29. So that land temperature record is not not appropriate to stick out there into the Arctic Ocean at this point in time. Anyway, here's a, a, a different view of this. It's a little complicated, and this is really the sort of the most interesting area of the talk, unfortunately. Sorry about that. Uh, what this is is the various trends and length of years that... Uh, the warming or cooling trends that the entire family of models has. All 21 of these models uh, run a a long time. These are the 95 percent confidence ranges. And here, in fact, within the 95 percent confidence range, you can still get some cooling trends uh, here below the line. Uh, The gold one is the NASA temperature record, this one is the East Anglia, and these are the two various different satellite records. And what you can see, again, Remember, the NASA record has the funny mask on it where it extends out into the Arctic Ocean where it probably shouldn't. Uh, These models are failing at the .05 level. And uh, when push comes to shove, if regulation of emissions goes to the EPA rather than coming through the Congress, that could become very, very important. It doesn't mean a thing if, if you legislate it, because you can tell the American people to pick their nose five times a day, and they have to. But with EPA issues the regs, there are going to be challenges based upon science, and this is going to figure in, I think, very, very prominently. Um, and just for the heck of it, let's just take the observed trend back to the 1970s and linearize it, and you can see here that it clearly falls at the low end. OK, now, why? Oh, I guess I could say it's the perfidio- perfidious nature of scientists trying to scare you, but I don't think we even need that. Uh, There may be some of that, but who needs it when you've got the wrong numbers uh, and when the numbers change? Uh, I'd like to, I'd like, because I've just about the right amount of time. left. I'm going to take a little digression here to show some of you the history of acrimony and how it arose in science. I have three temperature records here. The green one are the weather balloon records from 5,000 to 30,000 feet. The blue ones are the East Anglia temperature record, and the Red ones are the satellite temperature records, and I'm making you a scientist right here in 1995, okay? Uh, And if you take a look, beginning around 1976, you see the warming in the surface record, but you don't see any change in both the satellite and the weather balloon records. The satellite goes up in 1979. The satellite and the weather balloon oscillate in phase. So you had two records in the mid-1990s showing no warming when the surface record showed warming. Now, if you were a scientist, and you knew the surface records had problems with cities, problems with site changes, etc., but you knew the satellite was falling around the Earth, supposedly in a stable orbit, and the weather balloon instruments were calibrated at the point of release, you would say, hmm, appears to be something wrong with the surface record. And that's where much of the acrimony arose, because it was a very, very honest dispute about this. And then these records change and they become modified uh, for various and sundry reasons. So I'm going to make you a scientist in the year 2000. I want you to watch when I flip the chart, watch the blue line on the left. There. I'm go backwards again. There. So what happened is more warming was put in the surface record in the early part of the record uh, when it was iterated. And then we're going to get out to 2006. Between now and 2006, The satellite record is going to be adjusted because it was found that the satellite was drifting in its orbit a little bit and that uh, there might have been intra-sensor changes. You know, these satellite microwave sensors only last a few years, and then you've got to send a new one up. And it's not a pleasant ride. I haven't gone up to space, obviously, but it really gets bounced around, and it's a very cold, hot environment, depending on where you are. And so you're making a big assumption that this instrument the one that you got out there in space is really still telling you the truth and that's where the truth starts from the new one. Anyway so there were adjustments made to that and then uh, um, uh, some of the uh, weather balloon people, uh, Angel was one of them, uh, looked at the tropical weather balloon data and found that the noise to signal ratio was very very large in a bunch of tropical stations so they got thrown out and lo and behold, by the time we get... Now, start first look at the blue line, and then look at what change, how the green and the red lines change when you become a scientist in 2006. Whoa. Shocking. This is what you had in 1995. 2000, the blue line goes down more. And then the blue line really drops out of sight uh, in the 1950s. And this is where the controversy has started, where people are wanting to get to the original data that forms the blue line, and East Anglia says that they trashed the data in the mid-1980s. Uh, and it's not a pretty picture what's going to happen with that. Uh, I, I, somebody's going to have to try and reconstruct this, and nobody's going to trust anybody, and it's going to be bad. Okay. Fi- finally, why is the warming rate so low? Okay, I'm not gonna, again, I'm not going to do anything having to do with the normal human behavior to perpetuate a problem so that you give money to people to do the work on the problem. I'm not even going to do that. Let's just take a look at the carbon dioxide changes in the atmosphere. The red line is the Mauna Loa curve with the seasonal cycle taken out of it. The blue lines, the blue area, are the range of carbon dioxide uh, concentrations given by the United Nations for all their scenarios. What do you see you see that the observed carbon dioxide is on or below the lower limit of the United Nations range of carbon dioxide. Bet you didn't know that. Well, it shouldn't shock you at that point that the temperature would run below the mean value of their models. It shouldn't shock you at all. Uh, and then there's methane, second most important anthropogenerated greenhouse gas emission, on a molecule-for-molecule basis, 14 to 20 times as potent as carbon dioxide, but it comes in parts per trillion instead of parts per... or parts parts per billion, rather instead of parts per million. Uh, And when you factor it out, it should be responsible for maybe about 25 percent of warming. Uh, Its sources are bovine flatulence, that's from either end, and the number of bovines on the planet is not going down, that's for sure. Uh, rice paddy agriculture people whoops whoa sorry people have to eat. Coal mining there's methane at the mine mouth which occasionally blows up uh, I almost had a class in a mine that blew up uh, many years ago University of Virginia we decided not to take the trip and it blew up the next day uh, yeah that would have been bad. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was my punishment for getting good grades the five top people on the midterm Got to go into a mine in southwestern Virginia to see what it's really like. And the seam is so narrow it gets down to 18 inches. That means you have to be lying flat while you're going down into the earth. It's scary as heck. That's what Xanax is for, let me tell you. Anyway, uh, this is the projected range of methane from the IPCC, and the dark, dark values are the observed values. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a flop, Okay. Why can't we admit in these halls where the people come to find out what's supposed to be going on that the methane forecast failed, and it's a very, very important greenhouse gas, and the CO2 increases, despite China, despite India, are at the low end or below the low end of the projection range made by the IPCC. The IPCC is human. It has human frailties. Guess what? regardless of how many, how staunchly a person may want to defend it, it's going to make mistakes. And it did. Right here. And so that's one of the reasons that you have more warming being projected than is being observed. If you take a look at the short-term behavior of the methane, by the way, it really gets quite shocking in that that, uh, there are several instances here where the change in concentration actually goes negative in the atmosphere. And If you would ask any scientist in 1980 or 1990, will methane concentrations stabilize uh, or would the rate of increase drop dramatically in the next 10 years, not one person would have said yes. And if you want to ask me why this happened, I'm going to give you the honest answer. The three most important words in life, they're not what you think they are. They're I don't know. And anybody that comes in here and testifies, if they give you a definitive answer, I want to hear it because it doesn't make sense. Nobody knows why this is happening, but this is the second most important greenhouse emission that we have. Anyway, a little finish on the urgency of all this, okay? Here, it's urgent. The northern hemisphere's sea ice is disappearing dramatically. This is the sea ice anomaly. Uh, and you can see the big, the big low point here in 2007. And now it's come up some. Um, I just want to tell you something. Between 6,000 and 9,000 years ago, if you, if you dig into the tundra in Eurasia, you're going to find trees where there were no trees. And you can date them, carbon date them. And they go all the way up to where the Arctic Ocean is now. And, in fact, on some of the islands, I think Wrangell Island, if you dig down in there, in the ocean, it's the Arctic Ocean itself, there are trees. It had to be much, much warmer in the summer for millennia for those trees to grow. They didn't grow there by accident. Uh, McDonald has it at about 12.6 degrees maximum July temperature, above today's, above what he calls modern value during those millennia. And that extended all the way across Siberia and Scandinavia. And it's clear, it was clearly warmer in northern North America, too. Now, a couple things. One, if it's that much warmer for millennia, enough for the boreal forest to grow to the Arctic Ocean in northern Canada, how much warm water, warmer water has to be sitting there in the Arctic Ocean? A lot. So that means that the ice was gone at the end of summer for millennia after the end of the Ice Age. Polar bear survived obviously. Inuit culture, radiated, obviously. Millennia, not this one or two hundred year blip we're talking about from human activity. Just remember that. It's a little bit more resilient than you think. Uh, And number two, uh, let's take a look at the southern hemisphere ice anomaly, which shows a statistically significant increase measured by the same satellite. Uh, Why? Well, there are probably several reasons, not the least of which is if you Warm up the Southern Ocean a little bit. You're going to put more. Uh, you may put more cloud cover into the air. You may increase the precipitation over Antarctica, which is going to fall as snow, not rain. There's very little rain in Antarctica. There's some on the Antarctic Peninsula, but not a heck of a lot. Uh, and so, therefore, you increase the ice flux, if you will, onto the area and. Here's a shocker that just came out um, a couple of weeks ago that got absolutely no coverage whatsoever. Whoops, I went ahead of myself. This is the Arctic summer ice melt departure from normal. Okay, you see it's going down. This This is not the ice going down. It's the ice melt going down. In other words, it's melting less over time, integrated, not surprising if a place gets a little cloudier because you put more moisture in the air. Not surprising if you have more snow uh, to melt. And if we, by the way, if we take a look, this thing is supposed to go backwards, there we go. If we take a look at the, other finish of this one. If we take a look at the global ice anomaly, oceanic ice anomaly, this totes up, this is from the University of Illinois, totes up the northern and southern hemispheres. and The total tends to run around 20, 22 million square kilometers. Uh, I wish Rajendra Pachari and Ivo Boer would start telling the truth in front of cameras because they're giving their critics ammunition like crazy. When they say the ice is l- melting at an alarming rate much faster than we projected, I don't think so. This is the total ice, uh, and you see it here at about 1 million square kilometers below the 22. Um, it just doesn't serve anybody's purpose to say things that aren't true on this issue. And finally, I want to bring you back to what you're trying to do here. This is not now U.S. per capita income, but global per capita income versus CO2 concentration. Those people in China, they want to modernize. They're big. People in India, Tata Motors is going to produce a car, producing a car that costs probably about 1,500 euros, something like that. Uh, Those people want that car. Somehow, through our words, we're going to deconvolve this relationship worldwide. I'd say that's a rather daunting task, to say the least. And furthermore, there's another piece of this relationship that is equally scary. Here's life expectancy versus carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. I always find it very amusing when people say global warming kills 300,000 or 400,000 people a year or something like that. You forget that the society that was built on fossil fuels, the technology spin-offs, also resulted in modern medicine and various and sundry improvements to life that doubled life expectancy. That's a lot. And it far dwarfs uh, any of the deaths that you might attribute. You have to look at both sides of the equation if you're going to look at this dispassionately. Uh, So I'd like to just conclude by saying, uh, first of all, thanks for your time, number one. Number two, yeah, the planet's warming. Number three, it's not the end of the world. You have time to deal with it. And number four, you are engaging in the greatest social engineering experiment in history. So maybe, you know, stepping back a little bit and thinking about it might not be a bad idea, despite the noise, the wind, the sound, and the fury of the hurricane that surrounds you politically. Thank you very much.